timing in our lives. This morning, John, Pastor John has read for us from Luke chapter 2, and this morning I want to encourage you to uh, take your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, I want you to pay particular attention to the Scripture that will be up on the screen today. We're going to look at three passages of Scripture, one that Pastor John has already read from Luke chapter 2, and then uh, I want you to just put your finger right there, if you will, for just a moment, Luke 2, and then I want you to go with me over to the book of Galatians. I want to call uh, your attention in Luke chapter 2, especially to verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, and it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And then in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this. Don't miss this this morning. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and in order that he might redeem those that who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. If Christmas is about anything, Christmas is about God's sovereign timing in our lives and in the lives of mankind. The book of Ecclesiastes, and this morning when I look at that chapter 3, it's some very interesting things about God and his timing, but listen very carefully. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth, and a, a time to die, a time to plan, and a time to uproot that which is planted, and a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a, a time to weep, a time to laugh. Boy, some of us need that word, don't we? A time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to throw stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to shun embracing, a time to search, a, a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak and a time to love and a a time to eat. He just goes through and he tells us about all these seasons. And then in verse 11, he says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. And he has set eternity in the heart of man. That's an amazing statement. The, Ecclesi the, the Ecclesiastes writer says, God has made everything appropriate in its time, showing that God is aware about everything, even the very moments of your life and my life. I mean, he knows the seconds of our lives, everything appropriate in its time. Such infinitesimal care and details, and yet, in the same sense, the same God who knows every moment of your time and my time has set eternity in our heart. That's a picture of God knowing the very smallest, minute details of our lives and being in control of them in his sovereignty. It's a picture of God saying, in the same sense, I have set eternity in the heart. It's the big picture and the small picture all together. 
Now, how does that relate then to Christmas, Pastor? Well, when you look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 for just a moment, it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. This was a very human person, Mary, giving birth to a very human body, Jesus. It speaks of the humanity of Christ, a human mother, a human baby, humanity. Then when we look at Galatians 4, the very first part, very middle part where it says, and God sent forth his son. You see the humanness, now you see the divinity. A divine father, a holy father, God being born in the flesh. These two verses when you wrap them together, give us the theology of the incarnation of Christ, which is God becoming flesh, human yet divine, divine and human, the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, that we who are the sons of man can become sons of God. It is an incredible theme, and nobody gives a better description than Galatians chapter 4. Look back with me, if you will, just for a moment at Luke chapter 2 and that for a second in verse 6, the latter part of that verse speaks of the timing of God and the pregnancy of Mary. The days were completed for her to give birth. In other words, the nine-month period was taking place, the timing of God. Here we go again in the very details, the infinite details of everyday life. And then when you look at chapter 4 of Galatians, the beginning part, and when the fullness of time had come, that is the timing of God in his eternal plan. God being able to see us in our moments and God being able to see us in the whole scope of eternity. It is an amazing God that we serve, ladies and gentlemen. And when you look at Mary for a second, just a moment, let's look at Mary. And as I look at her, I can see that God's timing in her life was inconvenient. You ever had anything happen that was inconvenient? Yesterday, we got back. By the way, this, this week has been a crazy week, but it's been a great week. We, we traveled to uh, North Carolina or South Carolina, actually, Fort Mill. My, my son, our son, uh, has a restaurant in Charlotte, and he and his wife and our two grandbabies, Piper Jane and Judah Haywood. And I mean, when we pulled up to, to, to their home, Here's Piper Jane in a, uh, she, she always has a Cinderella dress on, I think. She's two and two and a few months, and, and she came out that door. She was barefoot. It was cold outside, and she said, oh, there's my papa. Well, my Christmas was complete. She came running out to me and into my arms, and here came a little boy who's only 14 months old running right out to Nana, and our Christmas was done. I mean, it was wonderful in that moment, in that moment. And, and by the way, the best thing I got for Christmas was a home, homemade ornament from Piper Jane. I mean, it, it's got glue stuck all over it. It's got glitter. It is a prize. It would be in an art museum if I could get it there. But then, for some reason, I don't know what happened to Jennifer and I, and she's here this morning, she can verify everything I'm saying. 
we decided, we, we lost our dog in September. We had to put him down, and, and, and I said, there'll never be another dog. We're not going to get another dog. I mean, we had the smartest dog. It was named Lewis after C.S. Lewis, and I mean, this dog was smart. Well, we bought a dog. <laughs> Somebody check my brains. I mean, we bought, he's seven weeks old today. He's a sheep-a-doodle. He's pretty. He's loud. I mean, the last two nights around our house have been like, we got home. We finally, it took us 13 hours to get home from Pickens, South Carolina. If you know where Pickens is, it's not 13 hours away. But it was on Friday. And it was the longest drive, and earlier in the week I had some, I had some problems with a, a, a health situation, and, and, and I won't go into detail because Jennifer's saying don't tell them any too much information, Ellen. <laughs> and I wanted to go get my truck washed yesterday after being in all that rain and all that stuff, so I went and got my truck washed. Meanwhile, while my truck was in the car wash, my phone got stolen. Okay. Now, if you haven't had your phone stolen or lost, I'm going to pray for you that maybe you experience that and understand the patience of God. <laughs> I mean, woo! And, and I, you know, all you can do is shut it down. All you can do is disable it. If you try to call me the next two days, I'm unavailable because I don't have a phone right now. You talk, uh, you talk about the Lord teaching me something, though. We become so interdependent on stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's my computer, it's, it's my everything. And you know what? It's okay. So then I have a flat tire on the way home. And no phone to call her and say, I'm stopped at Tire Kingdom because I got a flat tire on a brand new truck. And it's because she was driving it the other night. No, 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 I'm teasing. I'm teasing. At least some of you are awake now. And so then I call John on Jennifer's phone and tell him I'm in the emergency room and I'm not visiting people, I'm a patient. And I was in the ER last night until about 8 or 8.30, I guess. But I'm here this morning. My wife drove me, okay, and I'm here this morning. But all of that said, do you think anything has caught God off? Is he surprised? Ladies and gentlemen, when we look at this story and we think about Mary, and I want you to dig in with me this morning, let me just show you some things that I wrote down about Mary. And it's not an exhaustive list, but let me give you four or five things that, that, that this was not the right time for her to have a child. Her marriage was not yet consummated. It's, it, it's just not the right time for her to bring forth the birth of her firstborn son. She's not even completed her marriage with Joseph yet. And then I think about the birth of her child is going to be in an occupied territory. It's not even going to be at home where there's security. It's, it's going to be in a place that is occupied by other people. It's not exactly the place you would want to give birth to your firstborn let alone your second or your thirdborn, but your firstborn. The census, the Bible says, had totally disrupted all of their plans. And so here she was going to have that baby with her, 
her family and friends, all of a sudden the census just pulls them up and they have to go to another place and they have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. It's a strange town and there's no support system there in Bethlehem. And so in all likelihood, Mary's never even been there before. Strange town, strange people, strange place, away from mom, away from the sisters, away from the family, all of the support system that you want in the birth of a child, especially the first one. There's inadequate housing. They go to the inn and there's no place for them. And, and, and there's not a place for Jesus to be born. And in the short term, if, if you would stop and say, Mary, what do you think about the timing of God for the birth of the Christ child? I guarantee you that Mary would say it doesn't seem to be the right time. Now, folks, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I can relate to this. That applies right into our lives. There have been all kinds of things that God has done, little, little circumstances, coincidences, whatever you want to call them, that have come into my life, and I've looked at them, and I've said, God, this is not the time for this. This isn't the right time. You see, all we get is one little picture, just one little part of this incredibly eternal puzzle. And I'm telling you, when you get one piece of the puzzle and you happen to be a part of that one piece, there, there's an awful lot of things that can happen in your life and in my life that will shake our head and we'll say, now, that, that doesn't make one bit of sense. I'm here to tell you that we usually only get one piece of the puzzle and then God's sovereignty and God's timing and many of the things that happened to you and happened to me, uh, the things we just shake our heads and we say, I don't understand my life. I don't understand what is going on. Why? Why would this happen? Why at this time? And we're going to come back to that because in just a few moments, we're going to circle around and come back to that portion of the message. But let me give you the big picture. In light of prophecy, the Bible says this, the timing was perfect. You see, in light of the prophecy of God, this birth of Jesus was just perfect as far as timing. Let me show you some real quick things according to the Bible. Let me give you some Old Testament thoughts. The Old Testament said the Messiah would come and emerge victorious. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as soon as Adam and Eve fell in the garden and sinned against God, God said, don't worry, I have a plan. And the prophecy, the very first prophecy of the Messiah was Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, the Bible says the Messiah would come from the nation Israel. That's in Genesis chapter 12. Remember when God spoke to Abraham and told Abraham concerning his descendants. And then that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. That's in Genesis chapter 48. That's the story where Jacob gathered his 12 sons together and he began to prophesy concerning about their future. And he brought his fourth son in Judah. And when bringing his fourth son in, told Judah that the scepter would never be taken out of the hand of Judah. Literally, that the Messiah would be born out of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah would come from the house and the lineage of David. 
10 centuries before the birth of Jesus, David wanted to build a temple. We know the story, and God said no. You're a warrior king. Your son Solomon will build the temple. And David was so disappointed. And in David's disappointment, God said, but let me tell you something, David. It will be from your house and your lineage. The Messiah will come 10 centuries before. And then the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah said that. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah said that. Micah said that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem, out of thee shall come forth in, unto me, into me, that which is to become the ruler of Israel. That the Messiah would be visited and honored by wise men. Isaiah predicted that and he prophesied. That And so did the psalmist. And so in light of prophecy, the timing of God was at the right place at the right time. But even, I think more significantly, as we look back from this side of it, in light of history, and in the timing of the birth of Christ, how perfect it was, no wonder Paul said, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. Let me give you some things this morning that happened in history that made the timing of God just right for Jesus' birth. The, the first thing that I think about is the spreading out of the Jewish people into the Mediterranean basin, the, the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. Right before the birth of Jesus, the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And that becomes very, very significant, ladies and gentlemen, because these God-fearers, these worshipers of Jehovah, began to spread out throughout the entire Roman Empire. And it was in those communities where God-fearing Jewish people were that once Jesus ascended back, that's where evangelism began to unfold. It was in these God-fearing Jewish communities throughout this big Roman Empire that the seed was first sown that Jesus Christ is and was the Messiah. And there were, there were beds of evangelism throughout the whole Roman Empire. And so when the Jews were dispersed, if they would have stayed in the same place, evangelism would have stayed right there. But it was through the sovereignty and the all-knowing of God that he knew before I allow my son to be born into this world, I'm going to spread out these Jewish people out through all of these little communities in the Roman Empire. And then there was a favorable legal environment when Jesus was born. When I, when I talk about this favorable legal environment, you have to understand that, the Rome, that in the Roman Empire, there were all kinds of people that they had conquered. It was a massive empire. And so they conquered all of these different nationalities and all these different people and all of these different uh, 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 religions. They were quite tolerant for most of the different religions with one exception. And that one exception was that all religious sects and groups were to proclaim Caesar as God. Now, 
that was the one area where the Roman Empire was intolerant. And basically, if you were going to be under their rule, then Caesar was God. And that worked with every religious sect except the Jewish people. And the Jewish people would never do that. They would never proclaim that Caesar is God. It got so bad that after decades of killing and intimidation, it finally got to the place where the Roman Empire said, okay, okay, we will grant an exception with the Jewish people. Now watch. Watch how the timing of God is so perfect. Now all of a sudden, the Jewish people do not have to proclaim Caesar as God, and here comes the birth of the baby Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, and for the first 70 years after the death of Jesus, the Roman Empire never did distinguish the difference between the Jewish people and Christianity. They thought that the Jews who were Christians, they all put them in the same pot. And therefore, the first 70 years until the destruction of Jerusalem, for the first 70 years, literally, Christianity was being birthed. And, 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 and out in all of these communities, they were allowing this exemption, this exception. You don't have to proclaim Caesar as God. Christians didn't have to say that. They didn't have to recognize that. They realized that Christianity, and by the way, in 70 AD, here's what happened. Christianity and Judaism wasn't the very same thing. They realized that finally. But yet, Christianity had taken root in the Roman Empire to, to the place where they could never pull it out again. All in the sovereignty of God's timing. It was a favorable Thirdly, political climate. When I think about this, Julius Caesar, who was probably the best known of Roman empires, when he was assassinated, you have to understand there was a civil war under, under Julius Caesar more than any other Roman empire. But at the close of his reign, at the, at the end of his reign, especially as Augustus Caesar came to the throne, which was about 25 years before Christ, all of a sudden peace broke out into the Roman empire. And for the next two centuries, there was peace. And because of that peace, all, all, all kinds of things began to happen. Instead of the Roman Empire doing battle all the time, they began to build roads and roads and more roads. And they built and travel was safe. And it was under Augustus Caesar at the time of Christ that they even began to take care of the safety of the people who traveled on those roads. They literally, that's, that's, I always call it the first highway patrol. It was an amazing, favorable political climate. But all of a sudden, it was safe to go back and forth and to travel and to spread the good news and to share the Great Commission. But the fourth thing was there was a favorable cultural climate. When I speak of a favorable, favorable cultural climate, all language was the same for the first time since the Tower of Babel. If you remember that tower where all those people spoke the same language, but their motives were wrong and God gave them different languages. Up from that time, up to this time when, where Jesus was born, all different nations spoke different languages. But by the time Jesus was born because of Alexander the Great, 
who was truly a world conqueror because everybody spoke the Greek language. So the time that the Bible was written, you always, you always hear, you know, you always hear a pastor talk about the Greek in the New Testament. The, in the New Testament, written in common Greek, the reason for that was that the common language that everybody spoke, every book that was written by Paul, every book that was written in the New Testament could be written in Greek and everybody could pick it up and understand exactly what was said because of a common language. Now, that wouldn't even be true today. For today, if it was written, we'd have Galatians and Ephesians in Turkish. And we'd have Corinthians would be in Greek and so would Thessalonians, but Romans would be in Italian. And Hebrews would be in Hebrew, of course. And, and you have all these different kinds of languages because of the different groups. But then there was a favorable philosophical environment. Now, even philosophically, they were ready for the coming of Christ. Plato, Aristotle, all these Greek philosophers had done a better job at raising questions than giving answers. And Christianity came in like a cleansing breeze into society. It's been said that the Greek philosophers were like plowing fields. They plowed the fields, but they didn't sow any seed. But Christianity came to those cultivated, fertile, plowed minds and began to sow the seed of Christianity. Now, let's wrap this up. Christianity, Christmas, is about God's timing in our lives. Christmas, we think about coincidences, the census, going to Bethlehem, all those little things that happened. One of the great things about going to heaven is, is going to be, we're going to be able to see, I believe, how God used the little things to be big in his purpose in our lives. Christopher Columbus discouraged one day, walked by a monastery. He was thirsty, so he went into the monastery to, to get a drink of water, and he sat down, and as he sat down, he was refreshed by this drink of water. And an old monk listened to his story and how he wanted to go on this expedition to find another land. And the monk listened to his story, and when it was all over, Christopher Columbus went on, but that old monk who was a personal friend of Queen Isabella, he was the one who convinced her to finance the expedition of Christopher Columbus. I suppose you could say it was a coincidence. I choose not to. I believe that that monk was right there and in that place when Christopher Columbus needed a drink of water and God used the little things. Abraham Lincoln, he was out in the back of the store one day and he was rummaging through an old barrel. In fact, it was, he was just kind of down there in it, reaching down and he felt a couple books in his hand and he pulled them up and they were Blackstone's commentaries. And something happened to Lincoln that day. He read those, he became a lawyer. He, it totally changed his direction. He went into politics. We know that whole story. He became the president of the United States and the healer of the sore, the open, gaping wound of the Civil War. It all started with him rummaging in a barrel. 
That'll give some of you the right to go out and pick this week. You see, circumstances, coincidences. Jennifer and I were talking as we were driving. She was driving this morning as we were coming here. I've got to tell you that all of my life, all of my life, I, I, I was raised a, a, a son of a Southern Baptist pastor. My mom and dad were in ministry when I was born. All I have ever known is either living in a parsonage. I, I remember the first home that we bought, but I grew up, I grew up in this, I grew up in this stuff. You know, and, and I can tell you the stories of preacher's kids that I know that, that, that will tell you, I'm, I mean, I've had them say this to me. I'm so glad that I don't even go to church anymore. I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't have that kind of experience. I grew up in, sure, I grew up in churches. And by the way, I, I just want you to understand, churches are filled with people. You do understand that, right? That's, that's, that's how we... That's how we understand who we are. This is not the church. This is the worship center. Here's the church. And you know what? People aren't perfect, are they? I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're not perfect. It's okay. Yeah, now you're laughing about it, aren't you? Because I got you to say you're not perfect to your neighbor, but you know what? They said it right back at you, big boy. We're not, are we? I have seen, folks, I have seen some ungodly things take place in a church building with God's people. But I grew up in this. I can tell you that, that my mom and dad were not perfect, but if there was ever if there was ever an example that I was given, I was given a wonderful example by both my parents, but especially my father. My dad was, he was the same in the pulpit as he was in the parsonage. He loved people. He loved God. He lived it out. Oh, he wasn't perfect. I can tell you that my mom wasn't perfect. She, oh, she was a spitfire at times. But my dad gave me a wonderful example, and I, I've got to tell you, I thank God for the church. But I, in my life, in my life, going on to college and then seminary and, and entering into full-time ministry, ladies and gentlemen, I could pastor a church blindfolded. And I was doing it. And in the midst of doing that, in the midst of doing that, I didn't give care where care was needed. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something. You're looking, you're looking at a man that in the last seven or eight years of my life, God has had to draw back, pull me back. God has had to convict me. God has had to show me things that that were so, so wretched in my life. And some of you, some of you have got this idea of the perfect pastor. Let me, let me help you with that. He does not exist. Some of you are hoping you get the perfect. And you know what you do? If you got the perfect, you would ruin him. 
you'd help him. No, perfect pastors don't exist. Let me tell you something. I struggle every single day. I've got the same flesh that you have. I got the same, same temptations, the same things. But, but when I think about this story, and I've got I've to help you with this, every detail of your life, God knows. God knows that on June the 12th, 2012, seven years ago, he would bring me to my point of desperation where I would cry out to God and say, God, I can't do this without you. I don't want to do this without you, but I can't keep going. I cried out not only to God, I cried out to my wife, and I began to say to her and to him, God, I've got to have you in my life. It just can't be when I'm on a stage, when I'm preaching, when I'm leading a, 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 a Christian not-for-profit. God, I've got to know you. I've got to know that every detail is in your time. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you follow him, but there's an there's a author, a guy that I've heard many, many times. His name is John Maxwell. He says the wrong decision at the right time equals disaster. The wrong decision at the right time equals a mistake. The right decision at the wrong time equals unacceptance. But the right decision at the right time equals success. Close your Bibles for just a minute. I want to talk to you as a pastor. I want to talk to you as your pastor this morning, your transitional pastor, but I'm going to take the T off for a minute, okay? Nothing stays the same. Nothing. Doors open, doors close. Options today become non-negotiables tomorrow. No wonder the, the Bible says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. If you would sit down and talk to Mary and all the things that were happening in her life at Christmas, she would go back and say, you know what? If there's anything that I learned about that first Christmas when God speaks, don't miss the moment. Nothing stays the same. I want you this morning to hear what God is saying to you. God has a marvelous sense of timing. And for some of you, today is the day. Today is the day. In fact, this moment is your moment where God is about to do a new work in your life. Some of you, when you got dressed and got in your vehicles and came to Bible study this morning and then entered into this worship service, you just thought, well, this is kind of going to be as usual. We'll go out to to mission barbecue for lunch later or we'll go to the Chinese restaurant or we'll go somewhere. Some of you are already thinking about going. You're already hungry. But I want you to understand that for some of you, it's been a journey. All of a sudden, all these things that you've gone through, maybe for this moment where you reach out and you touch God and God doesn't say get away from me. He reaches his hands back out to you and touches you and draws you in. He is seeking you. For some of you here today, for the first time, you need to come to God and you need to understand that God has already come to you and all he wants you to do is say yes. 
Yes. I need you, God. I, I repent of my sin. I trust you alone, God. I believe that Jesus Christ, yes, died for me. And I trust you. But for many of us in this room, God wants us to say, I surrender. I give up. I give in. I want you to have my all. You see, some of us were like Alan. You were going through life. You could get through it blindfolded. You could go about your church life and your Christian life, and you could do all that, but, but it wasn't a total surrender. It wasn't, God, I lay bare before you. All to Jesus I surrender, everything. Whatever it is, God, I'm yours. Take me, Lord. And in that moment, and in this moment, I want you to seize the moment, the timing with God. I want you right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder how many of you right now would just be gut level honest with your pastor. And you just say with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around except for me. And I won't come to you, I won't embarrass you, I promise you I won't. But what I want you to do is I want you to get honest with God today. You'd say, Pastor, I need to surrender everything. I need to surrender it all. Would you just slip up your hand? Would you just slip up your hand and say, by the lifting your hand, Pastor, I need to surrender everything. Would you just slip it up and leave it up? Just leave it up. Just leave it up. I need to surrender. This is God's timing. This is God's timing. Now, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If your hand is raised right now, I want you to look up at me right now. I want you just to look up at me. I want you just to look this way. If your hand is up, I want you just to look this way. This is God's moment for you. This is God's time for you. Surrender. Surrender it all. Just give it to God. Just give it to God. You say, is it that easy? Yeah, it is. Just simply, this morning, I'm asking you to come right now. Even before we start singing, I'm asking you to get up out of your chair and to come and to kneel in this altar and say, God, I surrender.